0: you're listening to evolutionary landscapes my name is jeremy johnson and the following is a recording that i had with carter phipps the author of evolutionaries unlocking the spiritual and cultural potential of science's greatest idea carter phipps is also the former editor of EnlightenX magazine we stopped by at a coffee shop in the afternoon to have a conversation hope you enjoy i guess just to get started like with the central questions uh how did you begin your journey with evolutionary enlightenment? I read part of your introduction. I think you had a chapter about evolutionary enlightenment. and sort of a history of it, but... Um, I did? I thought you did. Uh, the one about how Cohen got started and how... Oh, that chapter. And then you go so into Orbeen. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. A chapter about his, how he got started, right? Yeah, it sorry. About me, yeah. Um, so... Yourself. Um, well, I, my, my history... Um, I grew up in Oklahoma, which is a small, small town in northern Oklahoma, mm-hmm. so I wasn't, uh, it's was an unusual place to grow up for a budding evolutionary. Um, and I grew up in a, in a, so in a very conservative environment, a very modernistic kind of environment, mm-hmm. and somewhat traditional, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very aware of kind of the science and religion battle from an early age. Yeah. And my family was, was, was relatively quite progressive within that context, you know? mm-hmm. So my family was, they kind of encouraged me to think broadly and, and unconventionally to some degree. And they were always, there in the, in the 60s and 70s, my parents were always kind of interested in la- some of the latest ideas. You know, within, within a, the context of being in Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, I had a brother who went to India in the early 70s, you know, and... and uh, was interested in Eastern med- meditation, so I kind of grew up with that as a context too. A couple brothers actually. I was I love science as a kid. Carl Sagan was kind of my hero. You know, I love cosmos. I was, by the time I was in eighth grade, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. <laughs> I used to read I used to read astro, books on astrophysics that were way above my you know my level. Mm-hmm. Just and I wouldn't understand half of it, but I just loved it. I loved mm-hmm. it. So. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, by the time I was about a junior, senior in high school, 17, 18, I had this kind of spiritual, you know, I was kind of curious about that dimension because it was part of my upbringing as well. But I had this kind of spiritual urge, you know, impulse Mm rise and urgency and longing and just interest in spirituality, what Mm -hmm. that was, and consciousness and everything. So, that got stronger and stronger. And by the time I was about 20, it got very, you know, I just decided, okay, i 'm interested in all kinds of other things I was interested in, by that time I went to obviously my law school i was I was sort of a budding environmentalist in some way I come hmm. wanted to be an activist you know I had all these different yeah. things but this spiritual my own spiritual longing kind of just it kind of superseded all of that and I was very bright I was you was know, kind of you know relatively high you know, graduated honors hmm. and, and so I had a lot of i wasn't a happy kid I had a lot of Potential, a lot of possibilities. Right. Um, so by the time I finished university, but that, that superseded all of it. Uh-huh. And uh, I mean, there's just a lot to sort of, but so I met, so I was seeking very intensively by the time I was about 21, 22. I heard in the process of reading everything I get my hands on, you know, about spirituality and spiritual teachers and Krishna Murthy and this and that, and, uh, you know, just everyone, you know. I could read past and present um, especially Indian Eastern spirituality. Um, I, I heard about Andrew. He just started teaching a few years before Andrew Cohn. And he was uh, only been teaching for you know for like four or five years. Yeah. And he was leaving a retreat in India and so about three weeks after I finished my uh, degree I was on the plane to India didn't know anyone and uh, to Bagaya, which is the pilgrimage place in the middle of India, you know? <laughs> the poorest state in India. So, uh, so I was 22, I guess, and and uh, I was on a plane to India and did a retreat with him in India. Travelled around India some, visited teachers and ashrams, and just travelled in mm-hmm. India. Came back. And I was very taken by his philosophy. And I, and I think I was telling the story the other day. You know, I think I, I, there was a real dilemma for me in my own life of, you know, I wanted to follow the spiritual path unreservedly. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, there was a part of me that just wanted to give myself to that completely, Yeah. You know? yeah. And that was a very strong impulse and then part of me really wanted to give and to help and to be an activist and to try to work for change and to try to you know what I would now call kind of the evolution of culture and yeah. the institutions of culture and to be involved you know, I didn't know how those two impulses really related to each other, and it was an issue. I kind of felt like it was like two sides of my own yeah. life. You know, a lot of people I think feel that. Yeah, that's a, that's a common. It's not an uncommon, right? But it was you know it was a very strong. Yeah. And and so the the spiritual impulse really superseded the. You know, I had to. I knew I had to follow that. But I, you know, part of it was trying to understand how these two relate to each other. Yeah. And I think when I initially met Andrew, in some sense, I felt their integration. I felt like in what he was sharing Mm -hmm. there was an integration of those two Mm -hmm. now I don't think I knew what that meant and I'm not sure he knew what that meant exactly either and in some sense I feel like I've been on a a a 20 year 22 year inquiry and Mm -hmm. journey into discovering what that integration is really about what Mm -hmm. that means Mm -hmm. and some of it's been experiential some of it's been philosophical Mm -hmm. And and you know, and I think now I understand much more deeply. And he, yeah, he probably would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. What that integration is about, and, and obviously much of it, philosophically at least, was through discovering this sense of this evolutionary lineage, evolutionary yeah. spirituality, putting evolutionary context around the. Around the spiritual experience, the mm-hmm. mystical experience. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, that's 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 a short story. So yeah. that that's that's. Uh, so I met it. That was 1991, something in there. Okay. So it was about 22 years ago, 21 years ago. And did you discover? Like I know I know
0: Cohen himself, Andrew himself, discovered these evolutionary thinkers and spiritual writers. Did you discover them with him in a way, like? Would you say you kind of evolved in your spirituality along alongside him in in some respect? But I, yeah, well, we were working
1: as colleagues together mm-hmm. in the late nineties. I, I, he started what is Enlightenment Magazine in like ninety two or something. Oh, okay. But it was a journal. It, it, it was a journal. It was. It was a newsletter initially, or a journal, and then it kind of evolved into a national magazine. I didn't join the staff until 1999, mm-hmm. and so then I was on it until it's finished about a year ago, a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So... From the start, for all of us, including him, it was a it was a journey of really asking that question. You know, what is enlightenment? What is yeah. the, what is the deep experience of spirit or mysticism mean mm-hmm. in the 21st century context? Hmm. <laughs> but I was part of this very fertile period from about 1999 into the 2000s. There was about a three or four or five year period mm-hmm. where we really began to discover this whole evolutionary lineage mm-hmm. and it began we began to find ourselves very attracted to it That it spoke to our own sense of the spiritual life more deeply than anything had before mm-hmm. and it wasn't just spiritual I mean it's an evolution it's, a, it's, a, it's an evolutionary philosophy it's, an, it's a there's, there's much it's way yeah. it's beyond spiritual but it had the, this rich spiritual history to it and we, that's when we discovered obviously Ken Wilber was influential mm-hmm. but we discovered very hard Deshardin's writings mm-hmm. around that time, which were very powerful. Very powerful. And of course, yeah. he's a Catholic, you know. We were coming from an Eastern tradition, but it was you know that it spoke to us more deeply than any Buddhist text ever had in some ways And, uh, and Sri who was had this he Aurobindo had this incredible this rich sense of enlightenment. He was evolutionizing enlightenment in a sense. He was bringing this developmental vision to enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um so it's a bit different than Tehard and and it was just kind of one thing after the other during that time. Brian Swim was very influential, and it was just for for a number of years there, and really has been since then. It was just discovering one evolutionary vision after another, recognizing this evolutionary spiritual spirituality lineage in Tehard and Arbindo, mm-hmm. this cosmological evolutionary vision, and Swim and Barry and other people, this this sense of the evolution of culture and. And Beck and Wilbur and Gepser yeah. and it, you know it just it was like this unfolding of and all of it be, yeah. you know spoke to our own spiritual sensibilities more than anything we had found yeah up to that time and we began to recognize ah this is this is our native home and whatever we were whatever the spiritual vision we were following and that, that cone was following too you know, we were following through through his example and through our own interest mm-hmm. it was. You know, it was it was that that was yeah, it. Yeah. It's funny because he, he, when he first was teaching, he used the word "impersonal enlightenment" when he first was teaching, which not a good uh-huh. word. He kept throughout the nineties he would use that word, but what he meant by it, people would misunderstand it. But what he meant by it was a, a context for understanding the, the nature of the spiritual impulse that wasn't just about one's personal enlightenment, personal development, and then when we begin to appreciate this evolutionary lineage we begin to see what it's really yeah, yeah. impersonal really meant evolutionary in the sense yeah. it's part of this larger process of becoming and development mm-hmm. that's, that's happening mm-hmm. so yeah. do you have a a particular favorite amongst the lineage is there somebody that you're, you gravitate whichever towards i'm reading, whichever i'm reading currently <laughs> I mean, I if, so. you, if you look at I mean, I, I well, it's beautiful for me because I, I feel like I discovered them one after the other. I mean, I initially, and to some extent, we discovered them together on the on the staff of mm-hmm. Lightning X magazine. We kind of discovered, we would read them together, and we read, you know, one issue we read, Tayhar, and we all were blown away, and we all were all thrilled by it. It was yeah. influential on all of us. Another another uh, issue we would read, Orbindo, and we'd be, you mm-hmm. know, and then the next issue, and. I mean, I recently I've been reading more Gebser, you know, mm-hmm. who is just really extraordinary in many ways, and, um, yeah, and Whitehead's almost I got impossible to read in some sense. So, <laughs> oh, Whitehead I haven't tackled him yet, <laughs> so that's a whole challenge in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I don't know if I have a favorite, but, mm. but, uh, but they're incredible. I mean, but you see in those early visions there's something just really remarkable about them. I mean, they're, they're complex, they're hard to read. Mm-hmm. And, but you almost feel it was, it was just the nature of their visions were so forward-looking and so ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. It was almost... It was like this kind of mixture of on one hand this kind of visionary beauty and this kind of intense complexity yeah. kind of mixed together. Yeah, you know? definitely. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny how far, you know, versus, like, this book and then... Yeah, I this like... Book. No, exactly, you know, right? This had I feel like that's that. I say that in the book. I talk about, at least in the chapter on Andrew, I talk about how you know. I feel like his contributions are many, but one is certainly to take. To, to bring that, you know, what the, the project Aurobindo kind of began, which is to begin to rethink enlightenment yeah. in the context of an evolutionary vision and, and really bring that and, and simplify it and make it a path that, you know, people can understand and get and relate to and follow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's like it not just an incredibly complex philosophy that you dig into it very deeply, you'll appreciate, mm-hmm. and will even be transformed it. But to really make it, and that's Andrew. I mean, Andrew's a real teacher in that sense. He's that's his gift is to make it, turn it into a, teach, a, a teaching in a way that yeah. people can really respond yeah. to. Andrew's not he's not so much a philosopher. Even though he's obviously very informed by all this philosophy. Mm-hmm. But his gift is as a, to be able to turn it into a, a teaching that can be really practiced. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: About your book Evolutionaries, can you go into uh, what kickstarted you to start that? Is it around this general idea to make all of these authors accessible in a sort of more journalistic style? Yes, like, definitely. I think Macintosh was mentioning, like, he's tackling the philosophy and articulating new visions of the philosophy, but you want to convey the story and the material and the the meaning
1: to, like, the yeah. general... Well, I really wanted to com- exactly. I wanted to convey that there's this movement happening. You know? And it's not, not just evolutionary spirituality, which is where I kind of came out from that mm-hmm. angle, but, but it's evolutionary philosophy. It's, it's, it's how we understand the evolution of spirit and mysticism, but also the evolution of culture. It's this cosmological vision. It's this, for some, it's this technological Information, vision evolution so there's all kinds of ways in which we're thinking about evolution that's impacting the way we understand everything really Yeah. and there's, and there's some seminal thinkers that I think are, are contributing to this and so I wanted to kind of capture a sense of that world and all the different pieces of it hmm. um, and in, in, in a way that was accessible you know that people who were interested in these ideas could the kind of book they could give to anyone and say this is what I'm into here read this it's, you know, you'll love it that, you know, in a way, I, I, I kind of thought of the book, like, you know, the book Chaos or the book Complexity kind of captured a new science that was emerging yeah. and the people who were helping to bring it into being, I yeah, wanted yeah. to kind of capture... A new worldview that was emerging, and the people who were trying to bring it into being. Yeah, yeah. And so evolutionaries was and you know, I wanted to make it accessible, but rich, and, and give a sense of the history of it, mm. but, I, but also tell it through its current proponents. So I, you know, and, and add my own sense of it, my own ideas around it. So it's, you know, so it, I tried to do a lot. It was a lot. I'm going to try to mix all those pieces together. <laughs> There's some profiles in the book, but I didn't want the book to be dominated by profiles. I wanted, mm-hmm. I wanted the ideas to lead, but it also tells. Some great stories about how individuals came upon this worldview and discovered it themselves mm-hmm. and who they were influenced by and things like that. So, yeah. So, yeah, so I really wanted to just... Capture the, this movement, and it's broad, and it's not—it's somewhat ill-defined. But there's a definite movement in culture to take this idea of evolution and turn it into a way to make meaning about life. And yeah, and you know, Ray Kurzweil is very different from Andrew Cohen, who's very mm-hmm. different from you know certain philosophers, who's very different from Robert Wright, or yeah. Howard Bloom, or Kevin, Phil Kelly. Clayton, or Kevin Kelly. Yeah. These are very different kinds of individuals in. Coming from very different areas, but they share this common vision. Yeah, they seem you know, to
0: be like so. really fascinated by this idea that there's some kind of process at work, that there's something new that's emerging, some kind of new level of evolution yes. or stage or emergence. Like it's the same thing as um, you know, the emergence of humans is kind of a, a mind-blowing concept. I mean, sure, we're human, but to really think about like yeah. we the only species that's like this is very unusual. And then to see yeah, exactly. it recapitulated yeah. in like technology so I, I can see why it's so fascinating um,
1: yeah you feel like you grab onto a piece of this and some people get they get the technology or information part piece or some people get this other piece Any, like anywhere you grab the tiger by the tail in some ways it's, it's fascinating it's compelling there's something yeah. very compelling about understanding our Consciousness culture In a yeah. developmental context Whatever the angle is on it There's something Powerfully compelling behind that we were, we were laughing One time we saw We were watching a PBS You know The PBS documentary On the evolution mm-hmm. You know It's a the, you know, Ten part documentary series Or something it's like, You know It was all very strict science Yeah But the science, scientists Would speak about evolution And they'd say You know And then evolution Does this And then evolution Does that And they couldn't Kind of help speak about it. Like it had some kind Of inner power mm-hmm. And of course if you ask them that, they never say that, but you can see it was just the idea of development is compelling you know? it's mm-hmm. very compelling it's, yeah, yeah, and it, it was interesting at the end of that documentary series they did this thing on God and evolution, right and I was very curious are they, what are they going to do yeah, how are they going to treat it and it was all about the only two perspectives were you know, strict kind of neo you know very strict science. Mm-hmm and creationism Hmm. that was it nothing else and it was just, it was kind of painful to see that. And to see that's, and that's the media's lens yeah. through which they look at these issues. And, and that's you know, very that's, polarizing. It's very polarized. It's very binary. And of course, you know, that's what the media tends to like that. Yeah. But, you know, initially, the book was a little partially based on the, the chapter, the article, The Real Evolution Debate, which I was trying to say, hey, there's these two polarized lens. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it in the article, but yeah, two it. polarized lens. And there's, there's you know, there's, but there, and there's a lot of other perspectives in the middle, mm-hmm. where people are exploring the, you know, some from the science, some from the spirit. Mm-hmm. They're exploring the implications of evolution. And I think is evolution, you know, as much as Darwin made evolution the powerful force it is today in culture, anyways, mm-hmm. he kind of, you know, he, you know, evolution, you know, preceded him. The idea mm-hmm. of evolution preceded him. It goes back much earlier. Mm. And so, nothing against him. He had this incredible insight into, into biology. Right. Yeah. but his father even studied uh, grandfather, uh, right? Grandfather, grandfather Erasmus, again. yeah, right, exactly. And, and all the and, you know and Hegel and Schelling. I think of Schelling and uh, and and Thich, I think we're reading Erasmus Darwin at the time in Germany, and so there's this, this was ferment of evolutionary ideas in, the, in an, all through the twentieth yeah. uh, century. I mean nineteenth century. So. Mm. So you know, evolution was never a purely scientific idea, and I intend to kind of wrest it from being purely a scientific idea yeah. and restore it <laughs> to what I think is that its rightful place, which is an idea that informs and helps integrate and helps us understand all of human life and culture, yeah, yeah. not just a purely biological idea or a genetic idea or a paleontological mm-hmm. idea. And that, to me, is critical. It needs to be a bigger idea. Yeah. Um, do you think there's a
0: movement between, like, let's say, when it first emerged with the original thinkers? Um, that was a combination of sort of spiritual and rational and scientific, you know, I mean, like Goethe and Hegel, and yeah, yeah. They, they had this vision of it that had, you know, the Geist,
1: you know, that yeah, sort of yeah. vision. They had, it was originally, they had this very rich sense of yeah. spirit, or at least some sense of spirit, and those And early... then
0: Darwin comes along, and then yeah. he has a more materialist yeah, right, natural sure. selection, but really honed in on the mechanism of it, so yeah. it kind of took yeah. off, yeah. and then... Aurobindo and Tehard had that spiritual. It seems to oscillate, you know, back and forth a little bit. And now we're back to the technological again. Yeah. At least I think, with
1: all of these technologists talking yeah, about it, the singularity it. guys. And, they're, great. and they're, they're again, they're completely inspired by the yeah. idea of evolution, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's in a very specific, and I would argue, too narrow range, but nothing against them, it's great, I mean, you know, it's great, I think right, they're yeah. on to something, but again, I just think it's a bigger, it's an idea that transcends mm-hmm. technology and information, but you know, like I hear Ray Kurzweil, there's a whole chapter of this in the book, and Ray Kurzweil, I talked to Ray Kurzweil, and mm-hmm. interviewed him about this, and you know, and yeah. he, he, he's kind of the, the the leader of the charge, and, you know, of the, yeah, the yeah. Gen- general of the truth, Google believes it, I and, mean, they, and, and, but he has a, you know, he's curious about spirituality and he doesn't have any kind of he's curious about how evolution applies in other ways and you know he's an open-minded thinker so yeah didn't he write uh, the age of spiritual
0: machines or something back in the 90s something like that yeah
1: I mean I'm not sure how I'm not sure
0: yeah yeah he did I
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So they
0: they seem open enough to it. I think even Kelly is a, is a spiritual guy. I'm not. Yeah, he is. I, I think he's a Christian. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Maybe he's influenced by Teard. Oh, I, I I wouldn't doubt it. I, yeah. I would I, I would I would I would think. Um,
1: yeah have you read any of McLuhan Marshall McLuhan you know uh, I, media McLuhan is, McLuhan is someone I'd really like to read and I just haven't got deep into his work but yeah. I will tell you he's someone that it seems to me that it's another way to think about the evolution of culture that's very powerful is to think about the evolution of the way media mm-hmm. the, the impact of media on consciousness right? yeah yeah, the evolution of communication critical, right? who I have read mm-hmm. and who I think is a great thinker along those lines is, is Thomas D. Zingatida. huh who's Kind of, in some ways, taken, you know, work with McLuhan's ideas in the context of media, and huh. and, uh, and you know, I, he has some again a, a really interesting developmental view of you know, how hmm. media and consciousness and it's good. It's, it's um, sure, just a regular coffee. Okay, milk and sugar. So he's he's a thinker worth reading if you want. It. His book Mediated is quite powerful. Mediated. You know, I think I've heard of that. Mediated. You read in like magazine you Might have. Yeah. what did you ask me earlier when I mean, you were asking me about this the singularity guys what was the, that question That was, um, was more to that answer oh just just noticing like the
0: weird or interesting oh I know what you're pull. saying yeah. right
1: well it's very interesting to me because it's, you know
0: Richard have you read Passion of the Western Mind by Richard Darna? Um, I haven't read that one but I read the other book uh, Cosmos and Psyche he has uh, a, oh right, yeah, right
1: that was simple. yeah <laughs> but he has <laughs> yeah <laughs> he has some uh, uh, this incredible book, so much like, And he has this great, great statement about Hegel. You know, he says the synthesis that Hegel represented mm-hmm. could not be sustained, hmm. meaning that people kind of broke off different parts of it. And kind of went in particular ways with it, uh-huh. you know, and, and this evolutionary synthesis, you know. Now, obviously, I'm sure, you know, we thinking has moved on since Hegel, so it's not like we're imagining that was some perfect system. Right, but yeah. nevertheless, he represented some synthesis kind of philosophy and spirit <laughs> and, and culture, and and, uh, and 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 he, you know, and, and then Marx kind of takes it in very materialistic ways and goes off in one direction. The Romantics take it and mm-hmm. go off in another direction. You know, and different people kind of take it and go in different directions. It's like the, the, he represented a synthetic statement that couldn't mm-hmm. be sustained by where cultural development was yeah. at the time. And I think, in some ways, even, and then and then you have you know Darwin takes a very scientific, powerful science, and, you know, scientific view of evolution and, and, and does great work. But then, to me, then these thinkers like Whitehead and mm-hmm. Teilhard and Avenda come in with a very you know, this deeper synthetic view. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I always find it interesting that someone like Tehard, and I, I say this in the book, he inspired, he inspired Thomas Berry and Brian Swim and Mary Evelyn Tucker and some of these eco kind of eco romantic. I mean i don't think it's too strong, but they, they have this kind of rich view of ecology, mm-hmm. and this powerful sense, of yeah, cosmology. And it's a very you know the universe story and there's it's a very powerful view, right? They're inspired by Sayard. I and mean, then you have the singularity guys who are like, you know, you know, brave the future, just full steam ahead, progress at all costs by, yeah. you know, transcend biology. And they were inspired by Tay Hart, too. <laughs> now, those two camps are very different. They don't like, different like each other though. much, yeah. right? They're not crazy about each other. Mm-hmm. The, the, that kind of, you know, very ecologically oriented look what we're doing for the world, let's, let's have a deeper relationship with nature point of view. Yeah. And the kind of singularity, let's transcend nature, transcend biology, go forward, full steam ahead. Those are very different kind of points of view, but Teilhard represented the synthesis mm-hmm. in some sense. that includes both of them.
0: Yeah, yeah, But
1: it's like, so I think, you know, you can see the power of that kind of synthetic... Yeah, and right. it seems to always come back to it, you know, it
0: seems to come back to it throughout history. There'll be, like, some initial, like, for instance, the Greeks, they had amazing rational capacities, yeah. but they were extremely spiritual people. You know? sure. you know, they had this idea that, you know, nous and gnosis and that sort of higher mind sort of thing that Aurobindo would later talk about, so they talked about that, but it kind of split off, so, yeah. I mean, do you incorporate that at all? Like, let's say, in your personal understanding of this evolution of consciousness, does it go through? Oh, sorry, uh, cycles of uh, like convergence and then differentiation
1: and then a higher convergence and then. Well, I think, I think that's part of it. There's, there's a lot of different evolutionary principles we can point to. I think that's one of them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you inevitably have... Well, I was speaking today at one my, my interview I did, and I mm-hmm. look at since the Western Enlightenment, you have this fracturing of knowledge. You know, you have mm-hmm. from, from, the, from you know, this theological over, you know, everything was theological. Everything was, science was theology, you know, everything was within the context of the a yeah. theological framework. And then you have this kind of fracturing of knowledge into this, all of these different areas and explorations, and, you know, mm-hmm. and splitting up science and a million different specializations. And you have this, and people exploring all kinds of ways, right? Mm-hmm. But you can see we're, we're heading, we're so siloed and so, we have so much breadth and not enough yeah. depth and so much data and Context it, that that we're headed back toward the need for integration. You know? Yeah, it's but, almost like, but that integration has to include the complexity. It can't. It can't go back. You can't go back to. It has to include that complexity and transcend it into a new unit, into a new unity. So you definitely see this kind of breaking apart into this diversity and this coming forward into this kind of unity and convergence. But the convergence that we move forward has to have greater, has to have greater complexity to it. Yeah,
0: yeah. I've always thought of it as like an analogy, like in biology. You know, we're the first. Um, all these different one-celled organisms are emerging, and then they have to find a way to somehow, at some point
1: in evolution, they start to create multicellular. Right. What's Elizabeth Sartor said? That's a good good question. The evolution, it goes from multi-creature... From cells to multi-creature, multi-cell, multi-creatured cells to multi-celled creatures to multi-creatured cells to (laughs) multi-celled creatures. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I guess, uh, like, cells
0: themselves are made out of different creatures that eat each other and each other, and then they become these kinds of. Yeah, yeah. And I think Tara talked about that too, right? uh Like, the collectivization of individualism, but not losing the individuals, but incorporating them in a larger.
1: Exactly, right? Martinism or something like that, and that—that's that. That's, that. His thoughts on that were particularly powerful for our, in our own spiritual pursuits because mm-hmm. we were really and have been like next exploring what it means to come together more deeply in a deeper kind of communion. Mm-hmm. Now the problem with coming together in a deeper communion is everyone desires communion, right? Community, and especially in this age of isolation and individualism, there's this deep desire for community. Yeah. But the problem, the tricky part is if you really, the, the more you come together in communion the more you tend to lose. You you tend to kind of, there's a temptation to regress into some kind of pre-ego. Submersion, like become tribal. Exactly, again. you almost go back to a tribal, right? That's the that's the structure that's there, right? So yeah. if you want to create a new structure, then you have to kind of go, you have to you have to go beyond individualization and create some kind of deeper integration, deeper communion that doesn't that that doesn't subsume individuation, right? Mm-hmm. That that allows and even promotes individuation within the context of, of a certain type of communion. So mm-hmm. so we're we working with that, exploring the relationship between autonomy. Communion. And Teilhard speaks very beautifully about yeah, that. He, and he talks about how convergence should actually increase individuation, individuation and increase mm. autonomy, mm. not decrease it if it's done correctly. Yeah. So his visions for that were quite... Yeah, they were inspiring yeah very very prophetic
0: I think and uh like a major one of the major themes at least for the past century I think is that at the turn of the century we have the mystics and at the end of the century we have the technologists yeah, that's and it's interesting. interesting and in my studies I'm doing a graduate program and I'm studying the internet and the evolution of consciousness yeah. kind of converging media studies with Tehard and all that stuff it's, it's fun but uh that's cool I call them the techno mystics because they're kind of the opposite end of the spectrum right But, um...
1: Where is I going with this?
0: Uh, There seems to be a need for a kind of synthesis between them to get them together. But at the same time, I think what you're pointing to is, yes, but to understand the spiritual nature of the whole process. Because yeah. there's a, am betting there's a reason why the spiritual insights came first mm-hmm. with Aurobindo and Tehard in a vision that engulfs technology. Mm-hmm. You know, It's mm-hmm. so beyond technology. Mm-hmm. Technology is just sort of a, an expression right. of right. a way it embodies itself, maybe
1: one way. Right. You know? That's cool. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That's interesting. Well, in the book, I, I speak about how... The Kurtzweil and Kelly and those guys—they're kind of, you know, it's technology they're following. But they—they, if you—if you read them, they—they, they, it's really information they're talking, they're following. If you go deeper, you know, it's technology in terms of what we think of the last years, but you know, it's, if, you, if you track it all the way back, what they're really kind of tracking is the evolution of information. Mm-hmm. And then, and I say they're not so much materialists as informationalists, you know, in the sense that they seem to see. You know, down. The, I mean, I, I can't speak for all of them, but they almost seem to see, and and Kurtz was like this. You know, they seem to see down the foundations of reality, like information, is being the key. Yeah, component. They're kind of like reverse materialists in a way. Yeah, exactly. So information is not exactly material. You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of its own thing. And the way, and information is deep, more deeply connected to intelligence and to than than the material thing. You know, than like you know what we think of as material and energy are. And so yeah. there's something about this information. Really view of the universe I don't know if it's the I'm not suggesting it's the final you know it's the final piece on it but it it gets us closer to a view in which you know intelligence and consciousness are more deeply integrated into this whole process than is recognized by most of what's going on in science, yeah. you know, a lot of what's going on in science, and so I think that's, you know, so in a sense, the way I feel like they're moving us um, closer to, to mm-hmm. that, closer to some kind of integrated
0: you know, In a way, maybe they're making it more accessible for people because it's a physical object and they can say, like, look at how this form of intelligence and information has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's like a backdoor to get that kind
1: of... Yeah, you know. ironically enough, it is kind of... And what, it seems hyper-material and hyper-techno and, before, and incredibly far away from spirit. But if you look deeper, it's actually, I think, kind of a closer move.
0: I'm yeah. Like, so it's yeah, yeah. And, like, just even thinking about, you know, Teihard's vision of spirit, maybe a materialist vision is kind of a challenge for the spiritual to assert itself in a greater way, you know? Like, it's kind Mm -hmm. of this, again, this Mm -hmm. push-pull, which I find to be so
1: interesting. Sure, I know Well, you know, I don't know, Aurobindo's... I mean, Aurobindo, there are certain things I don't think he understood about the evolution of culture in those days, but... but, the way he talks about materialism is quite powerful, you know, as being essential for kind of clearing away the superstition and irrationality of, of previous layers of cultural development. Mm-hmm. And that materialism and the rational, you know, the reason based approach to, to all things has kind of helped us. Kind of Clear away a lot of the confusion, and then hmm. we can kind of start again with a new inquiry into the nature of reality that's kind of free of a lot of that superstition. But but you know we don't get stuck in materialism, even though it's kind of helped it's helped clear a lot of confusion away. Yeah, and I think that there's 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 a truth in that. It's like I mean I would more say it's like. Modernism itself, the modernist worldview, has kind of done that service. And as we start to go forward, we want to we want to transcend the limitations of a certain kind of modernist worldview, and we want to go deeper into ourselves and our culture and the nature of reality. But it's critical that we that we, as we do, though we don't we don't you know you don't regress to pre to to, to more you know pre-rational, mythic, and superstitious ways of being. Hmm.
0: So. Do, do you think there's any danger with materialism and modernism in that it is so materialist and believes that, you know, the way things are are the way things... You know, what I see is real and that's it. Yeah. That kind of attitude that only what I can perceive with the five senses yeah. not with the multidimensional senses that we have... Argue. Is that dangerous? Is that dangerous? You're saying it's dangerous to because I know like yeah, Steiner, yeah. in his, I think he called it the Aramonic or something. Uh, yeah, the Armonic. Basically, that he called materialism a necessary illusion. Like, this is all kind of a. I I don't know where this phrase is from, A solid-state illusion. Maybe it's a New Age term. Yeah. But that, you know, this physical existence itself is a creation of the divine. And, you know, we kind of forget that, but science is necessary to understand that creation. Yeah. And the danger of science, however, is not seeing through the illusion entirely, you know, or at least not being aware of that as we work through
1: yeah. trying to figure out how the mechanics of the universe work. Right. It's like, I think the, the danger is we get lost in the it. You know, it's like, if you think about, I don't know, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. You mm-hmm. think it like the, the I, we, and the it. You know, it's mm-hmm. like if you get lost in the objective worlds of that looking like, you know, at it, you, you, You you lose the sense of the the I and the we and and I guess what you lose is the you lose the sense of the deep sense of the interiors, you know. I think a deep sense of of uh And ultimately, there's different things you lose, you but know, but you lose a deep sense of, of the nature of, of consciousness and culture, and I think and and a sense of uh, there's a lot. I think what we're discovering and what some of these thinkers are getting at, and I'm sure more will over time, is that you know is how much is is there just not not just in the mystical depths of oneself, which is partially true, which is true, yeah, but also in the in the in the nature of the shared. Con- the shared consciousness—that's kind of the interior of culture mm. that we share between us. This, mm. not this, just subjective sense of self, but this kind of intersubjective consciousness—or lack yeah. of a better word—consciousness is one of those words you kind of wish you had. You, know, you had twenty words to yeah. Yeah. different pieces of it, but this—you this, know—the this shared kind of agreements and values and ideas that we, you know, that that kind of form the subtext of our culture. This mm-hmm. kind of interior of our culture mm-hmm. and you know, it's like, there's a lot to that. And it's like, if we get too lost, and I feel often we get too lost in the material view of the world, we just miss a lot of dimensions of life. Not only what, what life is about in a certain way, but also what it takes to fully understand our world. You know, yeah. it's like, it's not just, it's not just because we want some, you know, supernatural or mythical idea to keep us safe, or make us feel safe. it's about, it, Ultimately, to me, it's about there should be a congruence between what our, our spiritual longings kind of point us toward and how we actually ultimately understand the world, yeah. cognitively yeah, yeah, yeah. and transcognitively. You know, it's <laughs> like so, they, they shouldn't be in opposition to each other. You yeah. We shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to throw away our rationality so we can embrace our spiritual side. There should be some congruence between those. Doesn't mean they have to. Doesn't mean that there's not authentically trans rational, trans cognitively states of realization and ways to understand and ways to perceive the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But those things shouldn't be in complete opposition to exactly the, yeah. the way we understand it. The I rest think of the time, or Talked a lot about that too. Uh, I haven't
0: read the whole book. I just started it. I haven't, no, I haven't no, finished a lot has of it. Anyone read books, all so of it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no <shit. laughs>
0: but uh, um, the synthesis of yoga. I think he started by saying, you know, the East developed transrational insights, like yeah. just amazing you know, explorations into the nature of reality and yeah. way beyond rational thinking. Yeah. But then more materialist rational thinking really understands the mechanics of this world. Yeah, and right. one culture kind of sees it almost as a duty or like an ultimate endpoint to transcend and escape. Exactly right. And then the other doesn't even try. It to yeah, it does. It's, it's more of a, well, Western materialism. But before that, even Christianity had a more. It, it was transcendent, but at the same time, I mean, Jesus became a man. So there was this kind of yeah. That's here's true. creation. Here's the stage that's happening, and there will be a revelation in the end. But there wasn't a sense that you can leave, or that you can gain that, you know,
1: yourself. It always... I think the Western traditions always had a little bit more of a... Of a... It's tricky, because traditions have all kinds of strains Nuance in them, yeah. but... but. I think some of the Western traditions did have a little bit more of a kind of a worldly, worldly strains in them, or world-oriented strains in them. Maybe that's the, mm-hmm. even though in some sense they were completely otherworldly too. But it kind of a different type of otherworldly, as you yeah. said, is this kind of promise and revelation to the end of days or the end of time, you know, or, mm-hmm. or after one dies, this kind of you know, or the Jesus will return one day, this messianic vision. Of, yeah. of, you know, in some sense, I, I did a whole article at one point on, on eschatolo- eschatology, <laughs> and all the messianic visions, and it was like fascinating. Fascinating research I did you know I got like a, a mini doctorate's degree in eschatology it was great but one of the things I, I, I thought afterwards is I thought you know I, you wondered if some of the evolutionary sense some of the evolutionary ideas that became so prevalent in western culture kind of in, in some organic way you know kind of in a sense of progress and all that sense which wasn't so prevalent in these kind of grew up out of some of the eschatology hmm. of the traditions because there was a sense of forward Forward movement exactly, yeah, in a sense of linear and a sense of the promise forward. of the future, and mm-hmm. that's very rich in the eschatology of, mm-hmm. the, of the Western traditions. You wanted that had something to do with development evolution. Now, you know, it's also there in the East, so it's not like it's not there in the East, but it's definitely more of a cyclical context, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, you know, so it's just it, it's an interesting, it's a, you can look at it from different angles,
0: but it's yeah, I think Gebster described it as like um, mythical cultures had like a circle time a cyclical and then for mental yeah. um, it was a triangle or at least the way people thought was a triangle like the yeah. logic yeah. equation if this then that and, you know right. that sort of thing right. but the triangle when it breaks down kind of becomes a line and then that's sort of like the trajectory kind of yeah. at least that's how it makes sense of I like what it. he talks Getscher about always has unique ways of thinking about things yeah. cool. yeah, he studied etymology
1: so he's, Yeah, I think it's a great way to get to the, you know, yeah, the interior yeah. aspects well, and that's the beautiful part. Gebser was one of the first, even more than Taylor, more than Arbender, More, You know, he got inside culture in a way that. And you know, when you read someone like Taylor, you go, wow, there's so much here that we don't capture if we just stay on the surface. You know, but we stay on the, stay in the, you know, there's so much, we can explore so much breadth of knowledge, but there's, there's this kind of depth of understanding some of these interiors that when you read someone like Gebser, you just go, wow, there's so much there. It's so important. Yeah. So, what, what do you and, think? and I think, you know, it's like there is something, you know, mm-hmm. one of the, area, one of the great metaphors, or one of the metaphors I liked, which was, like, which came from Steve McIntosh, is he has this great way of saying, you know, it's like understanding the interiors of culture is like understanding the interiors of the body before the renaissance it's like before the renaissance the body was seen as this kind of mystical thing you weren't supposed to get inside it you know it was like it was this kind of mystical super and they were kind of superstitious about it you couldn't even do you know you couldn't you couldn't take cadavers and do autopsies really like you, you couldn't do dissections and things like that I mean people were hesitant to do too much in the interiors of the body and then after the renaissance you know Michelangelo they were kind of breaking those taboos to try to get it in See the systems and structures right. and the interior of the body, and of course, it, it's an opening up that whole world that so much of our breakthroughs in medicine has come from.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's
1: a world of incredible complexity. It's not super. You know, it's, there's no reason to be superstitious about it at all. Mm-hmm. And there's something about getting into the interior as a culture that it's similar. We I mean, kind of relate to it like it's this mystical thing or superstitious thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's a lot to understand there. I think we're going to find out there's a lot to understand the deeper we get into and it. It gaps. He's like an early foreshadowing of that, like know. an early Leonardo
0: going into yeah, exactly, that right, exactly. Yeah. Um, do you think there's a fundamental like difference though, because like the way Gebser describes rational, the rational, like he has the, the the mythic, the mental, and then the rational isn't technically a structure; it's sort of a deficient stage of the, of the, the mental. mental. It's, a, right. it's like a component, right. like literally like one part of the triangle. Right. Right. Um, and this, it's the emphasis on ratio. or or, you know, dividing, breaking down, and it's sort of what you know Leonardo did cut open the body, rather than maybe we didn't have the, the technology I'm guessing, or, or even the maybe that's part of the process to have a breakdown before you can see the larger whole. And in a way I think that's what Western culture did to itself and to the world by, you know it created this amazing sciences and it also created huge a huge crisis in which we fragmented everything. Sure, right, right, and it culminated so. in postmodernism, which was the complete disintegration of that Western you know, scientific, object. Up- Objective mentality, right, right. picking apart the world, kind of de- deconstruction of it all. Yeah, but it's kind of like a hyper hyper deconstruction where it doesn't really solve it. It just says, look what we've been exactly. doing. This is a mess. Exactly. You know And now we're trying to get back to more holistic, but at a higher level. You know, so I'm guess I'm wondering is there is there benefits for the older structures of consciousness? Not merely a superstition, but what are we what are we transcending and including? You know, with those older structures that are important, like let's say Chinese medicine versus medieval medicine were very different, they had a very different right. sense of the body, and, you know I, I it's
1: funny, I know, like uh, I happen to know, like, one of the, one of the world's experts in Chinese medicine mm-hmm. and Western experts, at least, I think he's one of the world's experts, too and, you know, he says, like current practitioners of Chinese medicine, if you go back and you look at all the original stuff, there's like, in the ingredients for like a lot of a lot of Chinese medicine, there's just all these kind of really bizarre things in it that we mm-hmm. would consider totally bizarre, you know, like, you know, with those, you know, scarf or underpants or something, you know, just just weird, kind of all these kind of weird and superstitious, almost mythical ingredients. Like, I don't know exactly what they are, I don't know enough of them. And it, most people when they, when they do translate those texts and when they they kind of teach it they kind of take those things out (laughs) it's like but you can see and it doesn't mean there's not value in it but sometimes you know you can see the way we think about it we're so we're so um Inclined to kind of interpret the past in the way we are now, you know, to interpret the past as if those people were thinking like we are now, and kind of, you know, and kind we kind of scrub out the other parts. You know, that's just how we're inclined, and, and having a rich sense of development. You know, I think the deeper this this realization that human consciousness and culture has been developing over the last ten thousand years, even over the last five hundred thousand, we'll, we'll stop doing that. We'll start appreciating this more. Now, what, it doesn't mean that there's not tremendous value in mm-hmm. some of this early. It, it, I mean, I think each each it seems like each new development, and each is also reaching back and resuscitating earlier parts of our culture in the same way that postmodernism's. Reaches back and kind of resuscitates the wisdom and value of indigenous culture, but what the danger, of course, is we, are, we romanticize them. We don't just resuscitate them in an appropriate way. Yeah. We romanticize them too much, and that's the and that's the that's the challenge is to get that right. And, yeah. and I you know I'm sure the next structure will probably go back and resuscitate. You know modernism. You know because postmodernism kind of pushes off against modernism and traditionalism. So, you know it, it leaves us needing to go back and resuscitate tradi- the power and, and significance of tradition and some of its structures. You know we need yeah. elements of traditional culture if we're community, going to be able community yeah. and even at a personal level, a certain kind of discipline and, and strength and, and you know it's like there's elements of traditional culture and civic mindedness and all that we need. So anyway. So, that the challenge as we develop is to go back and, and pull out the best of those previous structures mm-hmm. in ways that really serve us now, but not to overreact and go back and either overreact by rejecting or overreact by romanticizing. Exactly. That's the key. Yeah, so, I like that.
0: Um, yeah. Like, for me especially, because part of my studies have been mythological studies, studying the imagination. And in some sense, um, you know, like, the, the imagination is this messy territory. It, it's, it's tricky in the same way that, like, the waking mind, the sleeping mind, the yeah. dreaming mind are. Yeah, sure. There's so much information that can be conveyed through dreams. Sure. There could be intuitions, foresight, sure. things that help you out. And the scientists have dreams that help them make discoveries. Often. So there's this kind of potency. Yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. And we... But the thing is, I guess the, the trouble is, with the waking, you know, egoic mind, we're trying to go into and say, like, oh, we don't need this, we can just go back to the dream world, look how much power myth and imagination have, yeah. but maybe, like, the two are, are necessary to, you know, yeah. find some kind of equilibrium with each other, you
1: know? Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, I, I think... I mean, I think that was also
0: a big part of uh, the turn of the last century, that... This economy between
1: mind and matter started to again. the kind of the science and the romantics. You know? Yeah, like Carl Jung. and yeah, exactly. Well, Young states. people like this—they, you know, the romantics, including Young—and you know, it was a kind of diving into this non-linear, you know, unstructured. Realm of the unconscious and realizing there's so much there and there's such a rich world there and synchronicities and uh, you know all these different pieces in the imaginal realm and this mythopoetic world. Yeah. And we can recognize the richness. We recognize there's tremendous things going on there. Yeah. yeah. And they have relevance. They have power. But I, I for my mind, I mean, I, I, I think there's a danger in kind of getting lost in the Definitely. in the um, kind of the seeming significance of that it's like we can acknowledge that without kind of you know there's all kinds of things that are relevant and true about ourselves that don't necessarily mean we have to get too deep into you know? mm. and some people they kind of they kind of throw themselves into it and kind of, I think, almost create more significance out of some of the experience of that role than is really warranted. And I don't think it serves them developmentally. Just in, It doesn't serve... You know, we kind of you know it's like the, that whole movement tends to romanticize a certain type of madness and a certain type of neurosis, you know, just because. You know, because you know, there's tremendous... You know, a certain type of unstructured, unbridled creativity, but but you know it's not centered it's too, too. yeah and centered you know and, and, and you know it's like I think that's anyway a I think it, you know yeah. I mean there's all kinds of ways to, to explore it but I, but I and I think that you know I hope as we move forward we can start to recognize and acknowledge the value of that kind of realm and the, tr- and the truth of it without kind of having to surrender our faculties you know, I still think as Lochman likes to say you know the egoists and the, and the rational faculties and all that as cold and barren as they can sometimes seem are are we have to that's what we have to work with. Yeah. We have to go forward. We have to include that. We have to transcend that. We have to include that in a higher synthesis. We yeah, can't yeah. surrender it to dive back into a certain exactly. type of yeah. mythopoetic realm. And, and I think Gepser is fearful of that, too. Um, right. Yeah. No, he's very yeah. clear on that. He's yeah. actually really... In a way, that, that to me, that's one of the things that mm-hmm. kind of... That, that really illustrates his genuine capacity to, to see the, the next step is his, his awareness of those dangers even as he even as he's deep in you know understanding all these kinds of really remarkable ways this kind of whole mythological realm
0: yeah
1: it's funny too but he's very aware of the danger yeah. of kind of sliding back into mm-hmm. and this was even before a lot of the progressive spiritual postmodern movements of yeah, the, before 60s, the 60s you know, so it was long before that but he was aware of this danger 1949 I think he published *Ever present origin before I, even the he wrote a lot of it in the 30s I thought too yeah so. yeah and I think
0: maybe a large part of that is because he had an initial insight that he believed was you know, the A perspective of the integral yeah. and that was a flash and I, I think he described it as like a flash or a thunderstorm of insight that came over him that he's been trying to figure out since yeah. I think 1931 or so Yeah, right, and, right. but I think that then he went back you know he had another
1: experience at Sarnam yeah yeah. And, uh, place later of, think, life. yeah. and he met I can't actually I don't know if he met Aurobindo but he went to Aurobindo's ashram oh. it's very Impressed with Aurobindo, and he says in the intro to his last uh, book, the, yeah, the writings of Sri Aurobindo and Tehart are, are preeminent yeah, yeah. examples of this of this next stage, so which to that. me, you know, because a lot of people say, well, he wasn't an evolutionary thinker, and he didn't use the word evolution because he felt it was kind of captured by materialism of the day, yeah, but that way of thinking about things, yeah. of that day, and. And uh, but I think the fact that he recognized both those thinkers shows that they were, they were completely you know on the same page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, go ahead. I interrupt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. Well, I can't remember my last question. I remember the question before. I... You were, we were talking about the romantics, and I was talking about not being being able to tra- appropriately transcend and include, but without getting lost in. Gotcha. So, yeah. I don't know if Kips are it directly or
0: anybody has said that directly but I, I feel like well one of the things he did say was that the rational stage or rational structure of consciousness made concrete human beings in time and space, in physical space, to kind of concretize. He always talks of concreting or yeah. making manifest um, this spirit in you know, in time right. and space. Concretizing time, right. It's kind of, the sure. ego is kind of like an anchor, yeah. in my opinion, yeah. that kind of grounds us in physical reality. And behind all that are other structures, like the magic and the mythic and the archaic. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, it's almost like if this is a big net this is the ego is like an anchor that pushes the net down and grounds it into reality that's cool. but then there's more that it has to incorporate now in a way it has to not go back but remember that the locus of consciousness that's in its waking state is just the yeah. tip of the iceberg it's kind of like an upside down iceberg Sure, but that's the importance of it it's so important because it keeps us grounded here and physically here so mm-hmm. we've got to find a way to integrate like the unconscious dream worlds, higher realms all those things that we came from you know, in our involution or becoming or manifesting, mm-hmm. and find a way to. So it's just, it's this fascinating in a way. I, I think we have to have a more nonlinear sense of it because it's kind of like we've emerged from the infinite and we're finite, but we're also infinite. So we're trying to make that manifest in the finite.
1: You know, like it's that. Well, I'll dichotomy. tell you, I'm, I'm yeah. hesitant about the word nonlinear because just that word has been used. Yeah. But to me, that word is connected to a whole bunch of kind of regressive tendencies. we not... You know, it's like... It's kind of romanticized, that word. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's like... And, and I, not, not the word. I mean, I'm, you know, but it's connected to a lot of ways of thinking. You know? it's, it's fine. There is, obviously. That is part of what we... If we kind of go from linear to non-linear, we need a higher synthesis that yeah,
0: yeah.
1: You know, it's like some of the, we go from mental thinking to feeling. We need a higher synthesis that includes yeah. both. You know, if, it's funny. If you hang out with modernists modern very long, you start... You start you love the rig it's like I hang out with mothers, and, and I love the rigor of their thinking. I love the, the the I love to be able to the logic. I love to be able to speak to people who feel it's necessary to kind of have a to make sense <laughs> and to and to speak in you know in very rational ways about the world to and to not just make kind of not you know crazy nonlinear leaps in their logic and things like that, you know. But at the same time, sometimes you start to feel oh my god where's the depth you know where's the spiritual or, de- or anything kind of spiritual just the depth of feeling and other dimensions of the self that kind of inform all of who we are and mm-hmm. sometimes you feel like that there's not enough depth in the yeah. way they're, bring- what they're bringing life and then if you go hang out with the kind of postmodernist, you feel there's more sense of spirit sometimes of consciousness and a sense of the recognition of these other dimensions and sometimes there can be a lot of depth in those and a lot of a kind of a richer sense of self And, mm-hmm. some- and it, but then sometimes when they talk you're just like Let me, you know it's just like they it can't, it can't make any sense yeah, yeah. it's like they won't make any as if as if depth and 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 spirit and and a sense of deeper sense of consciousness and a deeper sense of interiors to me it doesn't inevitably mean non-rational it doesn't mean that we can't be Clear. It doesn't mean that we can't have rigorous ways in which we kind of inquire into reality. Yeah. It doesn't mean that. There's been this bifurcation that somehow one means the other. One, you right, know, it's yeah. Like, and so to me, we have to get to a place where we transcend those the, yeah, those, yeah. those those binary yeah. categories.
0: Yeah. That's for sure. Um, switching topics. What do you think of? Uh, like, one of the things McLuhan said a lot about electronic media is that it's re-tribalizing the, the globe. Yeah. Everybody's going back into their tribe, and, like, electronic media lets you do that. Like, yeah. the Christians a- are using it for their agenda and their belief systems, like, especially evangelists. I mean, even older mediums, like the radio or television, yeah. televangelists, right. they have their own websites, they have their own textbooks, they have their own self-enclosed, yeah. like, yeah mini cosmology you know we don't have an overarching cosmology anymore but everybody has their own little thing, so like, I guess in an evolutionary perspective, how can we move beyond this retribalization of the world that even the internet's kind of doing, is ironically retribalizing and also connecting us, you know yeah. so, I don't know, I just
1: figure well, you know, I think you know, these are, there's a lot to this, that question and I think it's true to some degree again, it's like progress pathology, right progress, yeah, dialectic yeah. Of, of evolution right? you have progress, you have pathology, and that's a danger of that and in, in, in a way the internet and its subsequent technologies are kind of almost postmodern technologies in a way, you know, they're almost kind of you know, they're almost the breaking down hierarchies and you know, globalizing us, but also kind of breaking up a certain kind of modernist consensus so anyone can have a voice you know, it, it's like the the, the, the it's the the, the dignity of the individual is preferred and the, the capacity of the individual to have a voice is, is preferred over, you know, the, uh, us, you know, a few people being the ones who are, have the official word or something. Mm-hmm. Like. Now we may think, oh, that's bad. Everyone should have a voice but there's a lot of dangers to everyone having a voice. You know, it's like, it's not always the best voices who get heard. You know? Yeah. It's like, in the, that previous kind of modernist world where you have much more of a sense of merit, now, mm-hmm. there was a lot of problems with that, right? Who, yeah. Who decides? Yeah. Know? Exactly. there's a lot of problems with that and, and the, the, the great advantage of postmodernism is it's, it's broken down some of those false hierarchies and it's allowed more people to be at the table of discourse and more people to be at the table of culture and that's been critical in women and minorities and all kinds of people so we're, we're all it, it's a great equalizer uh-huh. and that's that's a very powerful thing but there's a real danger of that which is it's a great equalizer and it equalizes everyone whether or not you have something really powerful to say or something really you know really nasty to say you know and that and so that you know so it's like again it's the progress in technology mm-hmm. so I think that is a danger but certainly you know it's like you know it's like this kind of there's, there's a lot of moves toward you know. you can see that the moves toward a more participatory democracies you know it's like you can see that's coming you know people are Get more involved in the political process directly, you know. You can, you can there's no reason why you have to have your, your representative doing your voting. We can all just vote right yeah. online right now, right? Just you can see that you can see the movements toward that kind yeah. of very powerful, very dangerous, very powerful, very dangerous. You know, it's like so you know, you can see the progress and pathologies of this, of this kind yeah. of postmodern world we're entering. And, and you know, it's like we, we have to be careful. We we can't be too anxious about undermining some of the important structures of merit. Based Engagement in the public sphere that we're part of the, of the modern world. Yeah, you know, you know. And it's like we can't. Everyone doesn't deserve a voice. Every and so we have we have to. That's why it's important. I think that we the, the more we begin to understand the evolution of cultures and all these various dimensions and and these different structures that have emerged, the more we need to understand the the, the urgency is so we can deal with these issues mm-hmm. that are arising very very yeah. quickly and. and there's a lot of issues that are arising that have a huge impact yeah, yeah. on the world and the more we, and the deeper we understand how all this evolves the more we're going to be able to deal with them mm-hmm. but if we're lost in this sense that oh we need to get out of this horrible modern world and break down these hierarchies and get rid of Wall Street and do this you know it's like it, that's you you have that's a very you know, it's destabilizing to mm-hmm. structures that are absolutely critical mm-hmm. to upholding this world, to upholding the civilization. Yeah. Now we want to transcend some of these negative structures, but not at the cost of destabilizing the positive ones. So getting that right is all about very, conscious yeah. evolution. You know, mm-hmm. getting that right, getting the. You know, stuff, you know? Yeah. Otherwise, you're just you're knocking out the ladder, and you're just going gonna to fall down. Mm-hmm. You're knocking out the, the rungs on which you are standing even, so. Yeah,
0: I think. Uh, Douglas Rushkop if you've uh, heard of him or seen him around um, one of the things he says about the internet age is that we are too quick to throw off the older institutions and the older values like let's say of um, the labor that goes into creating something, like somebody goes online and they create, some, let's say, a music piece or a book, yeah. and they instantly right. demand open source it, give it to us right now, yeah, right. And, exactly. And yeah. there's no, there's no more value of the individual, and he's strongly like saying like we need a, we need a culture to surround the internet, not just a free for all, but a value system that emerges with the internet that um, can identify embraces. actual merit, right. yeah, and finds new ways to reincorporate the individual in this new collective landscape that we're. In, in a sense, I guess it's the same metaphor in biology. We're trying to create an organism of all these different cells that are all doing their own thing now, and we don't want to lose the cells because there won't become an organism if if that's if you know it'll just collapse into a mess. But how to create that higher order of complexity that's that doesn't. um, regress and flatten everything out and non-differentiate things again but to see like no we need these cells doing this unique little subjective relativistic thing we need those cells doing that too yeah. but the higher order the higher higher, right, exactly. yeah, the emergent exactly. like uh, like Gaia hypothesis exactly. or Gaia theory is like alright yeah we have all these different systems the biosphere the, you know but together it creates a self-regulating system to perceive that
1: it's, it's tricky but this so, is where technology it's to me this is why an evolutionary understanding of culture yeah. is so critical it's like it's, just, it's very hard it's going to be very hard to create those structures for this kind of fast changing fast moving yeah. world I think it, you know some of this stuff obviously there are warnings in this but I'm very positive I feel you know it's like I don't feel I feel optimistic about the future I'm, Yeah, it's an exciting I'm also, time it's incredibly exciting I feel incredibly optimistic but it's I'm not saying win. I mean, I understand, that, but there are real issues there, and it's like there's also real danger. So yeah. there's great progress happening. You see, we're entering new territory, and in order to navigate that territory, you know, it feels like sometimes also the deeper, the higher we get in evolution, the further we go, and you know, sometimes the it's like we need to be more conscious of it because the you know the tolerances can be a bit more yeah you know, tricky. You know, it's like we need to, and, and part you can see part of the reason this. Awareness is probably emergent this time, is because we need it in order to negotiate the, the steps forward. You know? Yeah, and yeah, that's part of what we need is to negotiate the steps so for all the reasons you're saying. Yeah, and it seems like we need all of our
0: faculties or dimensions too. We need the imagination. We need. Um, the mysticism, we need the science we need the new science, we need the postmodern understanding, at least to all kind of converge and then be seen through somehow, and I think the imagination at least I feel if we're going to revive that ancient aspect and we never went away from it I guess, but we're going to really bring it to the forefront with science, like intuition, imagination imagination helps science have a vision and helps us have a vision, so it looks like they're all converging right now on this crisis slash jump that we're all
1: a part of. A couple pieces of that. Um, the first one I was thinking is I wanted to... I do think evolution deeply understood in the way that I intend to convey an evolution. Been, you need about 10 to 15 ideas in there to go together. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you... If you that kind of go together to fit this, create this rich sense of what evolution is. Mm-hmm. And and if you don't have Those ideas you, you, you tend to create A more limited Narrow sense of mm-hmm. evolution is a very powerful Kind of dangerous idea And it, it's, it's caused All kinds of mischief And all kinds of nasty Definitely. Things in the past Including fascism Communism and, You know A lot of evolutionary ideas Were at the root Of some of the Some of the worst experiments Of the 20th century mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it we should abandon the idea, which they did for about fifty years, right? mm-hmm. which we did, you know. But we need to actually not. It, it, it's a it's a critical idea for our future. But um, but 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 it, but we need to include this postmodern phase we went through and all the awareness that came from that. We need to include, you know, all these. There's a, there's a lot of different ideas that we need to go into this. If we over-materialize or over-romanticize or over, you know, mm-hmm. then we, we we cut off a rich understanding of what the evolution of of consciousness, culture, and cosmos means. And we we limit our vision, and we won't be able to have that 360 view on this this picture that we've been describing. And through having that 360 view, it allows you, hopefully, to to respond to it in ways we need to. But, But if you, you know, if you, that's what things like, you know, it's like, some of the current attempts to apply like Darwinian mechanisms to culture—they're mm-hmm. very, they're powerful, mm-hmm. they're good. There's I don't, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just from my point of view, It's too limited a perspective on right. what culture is. You know? It's too limited a perspective on who we are. Mm-hmm. It's too limited a perspective on what evolution is. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. It's quite quite interesting in some ways. Mm-hmm. But if you just if evolution stops at that, it, it doesn't. It doesn't reach the point of kind of synthesis of a lot mm-hmm. of different ideas that we can actually respond to all exactly. this picture we're speaking about, and you could I could list different different versions of evolution. Yeah. So part of the book was kind of an attempt to to kind of put in one a lot of the different pieces, at least you know, and, and some are perhaps more synthetic than others. But that, that I feel kind of make up this. You, know, you, 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 you can have a rich view of cosmological history and not have any sense of what culture is you can have a rich view of technology and not have any sense of what Conscious, what mm-hmm. consciousness and culture are. You, you have a sense of consciousness and culture, and, and lose that sense of the power of technology and the optimism that engenders. You can have a rich sense of the evolutionary theology, that's, I mean, and, and not have you know. So you can you can kind of have yeah. all these different pictures, and we and we have to find a way to start to integrate more of them. And that's what the article that you posted uh, is part of the book, right? In
0: defense of the generalist. Yes, exactly. Right. Returning back to that idea right. that the generalist needs to bring the sciences and and the consciousness and the cultural studies and just kind of swirl them around. At like, like for instance, like we were saying, like Hegel or, or Goethe and how they have this kind of holistic vision of all these different aspects that they, they look at. And they may focus maybe on more dialectical or rational, but they still put it all together. And Goethe may not be like... I don't know too much about him, but I know he uses the imagination a lot to try to understand science sure. and understand different, you know, like, color theory and some other aspects, and Steiner really liked him. I didn't go down that rabbit hole Steiner yet. Steiner edited his scientific papers, right? Yeah. That was his first job. Yeah, yeah, so we have we see examples of these generalist convergence where the imagination and the, and the scientists are working together and I think I guess that 's what I was trying to mention before that the imagination has a huge role for the generalists because it allows you to see patterns you know patterns in balance mm-hmm. if you 're a rational scientific thinker, if you understand the mechanism of biology and things that we use the metaphors we use of mm-hmm. you know multicellular from single, single cellular we need an evolutionary perspective. Mm-hmm. To apply to today, to see the patterns that connect between, you know, from going from single cell to multicellular and seeing that we're in a similar predicament today. It's almost like higher rung of the, you know, evolutionary spiral. So it's so, it's beautiful, like, to bring it all together. But I definitely agree about the generalist.
1: Um, it, and this this is part of what may be an next will see hmm. but I do think one another it's, what is knowledge you know what does it mean to know something mm. obviously philosophers have thought a lot about that yeah. scientists have their own views of that but I do think you know I think it was Emerson or something who I don't know if it was Emerson actually, but someone said you know science does not know the, does not know the debt it owes to imagination mm. obviously in some sense before you can understand things in a certain scientific sense you have to sort of you know rich imagination as we know has been part of science mm-hmm. for a long time in starting intuition and vision. So I, I think there's an interesting work to be done in terms of understanding the development of the knowledge mm-hmm. and like where the relationship between that, between science and philosophy and imagination and vision. And in spirituality in some sense There's a lot of spiritualities that are regre- regressive And a lot of theologies that are regressive mm-hmm. But then there's some visionary that, Parts that are That don't trail The Evolution of knowledge they lead in it. mm-hmm. you know, It's like you can see They have visions about things and that, that science discovers 50 years later Right, yeah Now, you know And so tracking the, the evolution of knowledge and how imagination and visionary, and you know, introspection mm-hmm. relates to philosophical reflection, which relates to more concrete scientific knowledge. Exactly. The relationship between those and how, like we were mentioning before, and how they evolve, you know, yeah. and how one leads to the other is, to me, a really interesting project. Yeah. And that's something I'd like to pursue more. Because it's, it's an ama-
0: amazing uh, study of the actual, like, what is the evolution of culture? Well, it seems to be such a huge dimension of it. Like, yeah. uh, like McLuhan, for instance, he, he often said that, uh, look at the artist to know the future, to know what's coming, because the right. artist right. Is, I mean, is manifesting. Does that, right? exactly. yeah. And that's sort of what Gebser does. He, he yeah. studies all the different
1: artists of yeah. his time to try to, like, yeah. describe and I think at different times different things lead you know yeah. art might lead here or music might lead here or philosophy might lead here or science might lead here you know or physics might lead here you know it's like certain things kind of push forward and then everything catches up yeah. and I you know it's like so different things can leave at different times, but we need a very rich understanding of the yeah. way knowledge develops, and exactly. to appreciate that the way the way
0: uh, vision works, whether it's in science or art, yeah. the way that yeah yeah. So, so. Well, I don't know if I have any more questions, but that was a great conversation. <laughs> That's great. I no, enjoyed yeah. it.